Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Quarteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are recording. Just past Groundhog's Day. And it feels like we're doing this again. Remember that movie? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get it. Get it. Get it. I don't know. You think the groundhog's gonna see his his shadow? Did he or did I don't know. I didn't actually hear. I think he may I think I may have seen something online. I actually am not sure. Well, you know, here's here's the truth of the matter. There's six weeks of winter left, whether or not he sees his shadow. Exactly. I mean the calendar is the calendar, you know. So anyways, we're back again. Um with 27 Speaks, and that's Bill Sutton that you heard at the very top of the podcast. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here's Mr. Joseph Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us this week is um, reporter extraordinaire, Steve Coates. Hiya, Steve. Good morning. I, every time I see a background, I always think it's Notre Dame, but it's not. It's like the dead or something. And it's the Grateful Dead's wall of sound. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe because I grew up Catholic, I go right to the religious aspect Which of was, that. Yeah, there's sort of a religious aspect to that. And it probably, <laughs> probably took longer to set up and take down than those bunk beds. <laughs> Speaking of bunk beds. So we have two very special guests with us today. It's um, Alyssa McLean and Andy Winter of Noyak. And Alyssa and Andy are joining us today in connection with the story that Steve wrote. And this is really fascinating. Um, the two of them were down at LTV on January 24th, and they talked about um, a trip that they took down to the southern border in Arizona to um, to help out with the with the migrants who were crossing over. So um, we're really happy to have Alyssa and Andy on, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And the bunk bed reference was Andy was just involved in taking down some bunk beds in, in the couple's home. So the empty <laughs> nest syndrome, <laughs> just to explain Steve's arcane reference to bunk beds, <laughs> got to work that in there. So, uh, so Steve, do you want to talk about, um, about writing the story and getting to know Alyssa and Andy and a little bit about them, what you had learned about their trip down there? And then we can let the two of them jump in and talk about what they discovered during their trip. And I will, I, I will keep this short. Um, it's my understanding that after your daughter graduated from high school and, and enrolled in college, you guys went on a road trip in your uh, Mercedes Sprinter van. And I would like to hear more about this vehicle because it's sort of my dream to get one of those and drive around the country. Um, but that you had been to the border about 15 years ago when you were involved with the Shackleton School in Massachusetts, if my memory is correct. Yeah, good yep. memory. And had done had had made a, a an educational trip down there with students and had always wanted to go back. So you, this was kind of a, I mean, it was obviously a plan, but not really mapped out um, because you guys got down there I, and just sort of fell in to the line of people helping out. Correct. Correct. <laughs> we, um, we did, we set out knowing that we'd end up at the border when we left um, Sag Harbor in October. Um, but it took us a little while to be able to make contact with different groups and figure out the best way that we could be of service. So we ended up there in um, the end of November. So how did you pick the spot where you on the border where you went to be of help? Did, did you you were able to connect through other organizations that gave you some some ideas of where the help was needed? And did you have any idea how you were going to help initially? Well, it, um, that area is the area where we had visited before. So we were sort of looking at um, at that as the as a primary spot. But yeah, when we connected with folks in Tucson, um, they were doing work in the area of Sasabe. Sasabe? And, and it's pretty much due south, a little little, little southwest of, of, of Tucson, correct? Uh, yes. And, and how far is it from Tucson? About two hours. 
But yeah, so it's a pretty good hike. And it's very desolate. I mean, it's, it's you know, this is not the, this is the, not the Green Mountains <laughs> of Vermont. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, Sasebe is about two hours from Tucson, but then it's another hour or so out along the border wall to where uh, we were working. Wow. Okay. Can I ask you guys, what's the genesis of your interest in in helping down there? Where did, where did that come from initially? Good question. I mean, we did. So we led these groups of high school students. I mean, for me, I think I just went down. A, a trip was already in the works with high school students. Um, and I got to go down with that group for the first time. This was years years back? Mm-hmm. This was probably 20 years ago, maybe a little more. Was the point of those trips to get the students involved in helping migrants who were coming over the border? Or was it more just a, an educational thing to see how immigration is working? Or I just, just wondering like what the um, what the mission of the trips were back then. So it was both really. I mean, our what we tried to do with we the the high school that we we founded this high school Shackleton Schools and um with a team of other people and the idea was to take kids out in the world and and do things that make a difference and 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 have them become leaders and educators and community builders and op- entrepreneurs and stewards of the earth during this process mm-hmm. right so we when we went down to the border instead of going down there with answers ourselves we went down with them to find questions and then pursue answers and so we would look at it the issue of, of immigration from every perspective. So they met with border patrol. They met with migrants when they were about to cross. They met with migrants after they were deported back in the country. They did service work at soup kitchens and um, they they interviewed migrants after they were deported uh, to find out about their experience um, when they were incarcerated. Um, we met with- um, immigration, immigration lawyers and- uh, Civil other- rights attorneys. Um, Really, everyone involved, ranchers, um, um, anyone involved in the issue, we tried to meet with to get their perspective on it. And then the students at the end of this, you know, they probably would spend six weeks in the field or something. At the end of this, they would each have to put together some sort of, there would there'd be discussions and more research, and but they would have to put together some sort of presentation about what their findings are. And they would present this to a much larger audience. Um, you know, folks from Harvard School of Education would come, you know, look, parents just, it was a, it was kind of a big production. You really have seen the issue then from all different perspectives. You, you've been down there and um, it's not just, you're not just helping the workers coming across. You've, you've talked to folks from all over this issue, right? And from, from many different perspectives. Yeah, Definitely. So what can you tell people who, what, what don't we know that we should know about the circumstances? I suspect it's much more complicated than anybody wants to make it. Or is it? <laughs> Maybe it's not so complicated. No, it's very complicated. There's so many pieces going on. It's, um, and it's hard to, I was, you know, when we do these presentations, I'm kind of always amazed because now it's so normal to us and our experience. And so then when we presented at LTV, so many people were kind of like blown away, like, oh, I didn't know this and that. And we're like, oh, oh, great. I'm so glad we can <laughs> share this information then. One of the things that I noticed in Steve's story, which I thought was interesting, is that I think when you were down at the border 15 years ago, the goal of the migrants coming over was to avoid border patrol. And now the mission is to connect with border patrol to have them, you know, taken into the process to begin it. So I wondered maybe that's a place to start us to see what you've seen as far as changes between when you took the students down there years ago and what you were experiencing on this most recent trip and how that's changed. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, in some ways it's really simple, which is the people crossing the vast majority of the folks crossing right now are crossing because they want to stay alive. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it, back back in the day, folks were crossing because they wanted to come work, often temporarily, um, and then go back home with some money or send money back home. Um, now, these are people fleeing their communities, their countries, their homes, their their whole lives um, for for fear of 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 their life. And what are they? Who are they afraid of? So, see the one thing people kept saying like just the crime that is now where they live and the cartels the the gangs the you know 
we've had we've talked to many families who said like the, their kids, their young, like 10 year olds even had been approached by gangs and said, if you don't join us, then we're going to kill you and your family. So it's like the criminal element's gotten a lot more organized. And I'm wondering what the majority of the countries that the people that you dealt with came from, did you find that they were more from Central America? Were there certain countries that were represented far more than others in the people that you encountered um, on the border? Yeah, so it's interesting along the border, um, all of the the entry points are controlled by the cartels. And so they, there's certain, we didn't really meet any Venezuelans, for example, but they're coming in someplace else along the border. Oh, I see. Okay. So the, where we were, there were mostly Mexicans, Guatemalans, a lot of Ecuadorians. Um, West Africa. Really? Our first day there, there was a big group from Senegal. Um, now that we were gone, we're in touch with our friends who are still there who say that, you know, only half of the people are Spanish speaking right now, that they're coming from Africa. That's crazy. That's, that's surprising, I think, yeah. So are they able, do they get flights to South America or somewhere? Is that, or Mexico? I'm just wondering what their travel route is. Um, are they flying into point south and then doing the border um, on foot or are they taking boats from Africa? Just wondering if you knew how that migration pattern was working. I I know just a little. I, I know that um, some of the, the people we talked to from Senegal came, flew to Nicaragua and then uh-huh. traveled north from there. A lot of people end up getting to um, Colombia and then walking, like having to cross the Darien Gap, which is this that part of jungle that has no roads that's extremely dangerous. And I think I I heard somewhere like a thousand people a day are walking, walking through this. It takes about five days to get get to a road um, on that journey. So and the Ecuadorians that we met um, in one group said they'd been traveling for six weeks and that they crossed the, the Darien Gap. And so it's really it's just such an intense journey. So for the listeners who might be unaware, can you explain why asylum seekers from Africa would have to try to come in through the Mexican border? I mean, it's a it's a political issue, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I mean, there there's other ways folks can come in for sure. I mean, if they could make their way to Canada, that would be easier. But right now, the cartels, um, there's a really huge push from a couple of different cartels to um, globally. I mean, the the reach of the Mexican cartels is um, is now in New Zealand and Australia, and um, and what what they what they're doing is they're hooking up with organizations in these countries um, that are doing similar work but not as extensive, and they're providing them with arms and money or drugs, um, and then the funnel begins there. So, you know, then from that point on, contact is made with either individuals or substances um, and, uh, you know, drugs, et cetera. And then then the path, you know, these existing pathways for drugs have existed for for years. And so so the the highway and and the connections are there for these cartels to move people and merchandise um, north through Central America. Can I just jump in real quick? Um, I, I think one of the, my biggest takeaways from your talk was that you were I, I, were not really um, trying to explain or rationalize what was going on. You were just responding to what was going on, uh, and th- in that you were there to help people who, for whatever reason, needed help. They might be coming looking for work. They might be fleeing. Uh, um, a cartel or any other not reason, but you were there to provide help for, to people who were hungry, thirsty, exhausted. And I, I think that was to me, a, a, just a very powerful thing. I mean, that you were there to help. Yeah. That's the yeah. simple part. <laughs> I mean, you just, it's just heartbreaking when you get there and you realize, you know, their first day at the wall, we encountered people who'd been there for three days waiting for border patrol to get them. 
And, you know, there's nothing, it's just desert. It's one side is Mexico desert. The other side is Arizona desert and, you know, national forest um, and nothing, no water, no. And it was cold. It was in the, you know, high thirties at night. Uh, and so, I mean, how can you, it's just hard to imagine anyone being there who wouldn't want to just help, but, you know, certainly there, we, there are, um, but it was, it was amazing. And just so, just to be able to, to help. Did you feel overwhelmed by the number of people who needed help? Did, like once they realized you were there to offer assistance, did you, did people just really kind of rush toward you and, oh, I, you know, I need this, I need that. And what were you, you know, and, and you're in a van. So how much help <laughs> are you able to provide, you know? Not so much. I mean, when we, the, the day we arrived that there was a really big group, probably 300 people and everyone's like very calm and you know a, the a group of this the samaritans arrived with tons of peanut butter and jelly and bread and so we just got to making sandwiches and I, we in the end made a 550 pb and j's and um but people just line up wow. you know it's mostly families it's it's um tons of kids like and that's what really struck us too that was a big difference from when we were there um 15 years ago that was mostly you know Dad, the dad of the family coming to be able to make money to send home to the family um, was the major majority of people. And this, this time it's the whole family. And some we even saw there was a one month old baby um, with one mom and, and a lot of moms traveling alone with kids and right. a lot of kids traveling alone without their parents. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Porteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sac Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSacHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. The people that you encountered were they by, by the time you encountered them were were they more hopeful that that they've you know that they've crossed the border that they're in the United States and and maybe there's uh, certainly if they've got a long road ahead of them but but they've at least gotten you know past past the border was w w w were they optimistic were they hopeful or or is it still um, I mean, is there still a lot of fear about about the future and what's going to happen? This is the hard part. I mean, from for most people, they had no idea how how difficult the journey. I'm getting choked out how difficult the journey was going to be, and so almost everyone was robbed um, multiple times, extorted on the way. Um, um, women, uh, you know, there was there were sexual predators on the way. There's, I mean, it's like what people went through to get there was. Um, you know, really unbelievable. They they often weren't provided with food or water, and and were walking through the desert for um, sometimes you know a couple of days. I mean, it's it was it was bad. So certainly there was some relief, but it took a little bit to convince them that that they were safe. Like as long as they were on this side of the wall. Like and but once we told people that like you're okay here, like it's you know, and they'd and they'd be like. And they would look you in the eyes. And when they see that you meant it, you could just see like, you know, they would, sometimes they would just start crying. You know, they would just start crying with the relief of it. And and um, and the kids were the thing that were, were the most amazing because, you know, some of these kids have been walking or traveling for six, seven weeks. They'd seen just terrible things, you know, and, um, and, and the moment they got a little bit of food and water, you know, they just find other kids and play with each other, you know, like they... Once they sensed from their parents, once their parents released them a little bit, because, you know, these these parents will literally do whatever it takes to to save the lives of their kids, um, including going without food and water themselves so their kids can have it. So as soon as the parents kind of release them from under their wings for a moment, the kids just find each other and um, 
and and play and and you start to hear laughter and then the parents relax more and and after you know when folks are there for a few hours and they've gotten a little food and water and they the, the mood changes considerably um the other thing that really affected them was uh, our van has has a satellite has satellite service um and so we we hooked up the wi wi-fi um and and it has a, a great range i mean like we could cover this, this huge area and give people the password and suddenly they could use whatsapp and communicate with families um you know some people if they left seven weeks ago they may not have talked to, to their their grandmother or their mom or whoever it is that was left behind and so that was huge um I mean, they would just be crying and you want to say, I don't know. Oh, yeah, it was it was just such a it was amazing. And it made us feel like we had to every day, like we couldn't leave. <clears throat> we just felt like, um, let's get back because another group might come and then you're going to need to connect. I mean, there's no cell service um, in that area. And even if there had been, people don't have the SIM card to be able to you know, make calls um, without Wi-Fi in the area. And then once they get picked up, like they don't really have an opportunity to, to be in touch until they're brought to a center in Tucson down the road. So um, that felt so, like such a service that we hadn't anticipated that we could provide. It was one of the first times in my life. I enjoyed seeing people looking at their phones, you know, like <laughs> it was like, it was like the most heartwarming thing to see all these people looking at their phones and talking because um it was so important i mean i yeah uh, the exact opposite right it's a connection rather than an isolation at that point completely yeah yeah exactly so i want to ask from from what from the way you describe your situation it's very clear to me that your focus was on humanitarian it was about being there for human beings people providing aid beyond the politics of the situation. But the politics of the situation are obviously a big part of this. And I'm curious where, what you can help help us with, and this is gonna be an enormous issue of conversation in the coming year um, as a presidential election. It's already been a big issue in Washington. Um, this is a this is a, a a gap in the border, correct? This is a place where the wall was was being repaired, and so there's a, basically a spot that opened up, and that's become sort of an ad hoc opening to come through, right? There's yeah, and there's many of these gaps as you drive out to this one particular one. You probably pass ten or more. Yeah, and then the wall ends another ten miles further up the road from where we were. There's just no more wall. It's just wildness, you know. So. By the end, when the cartels were battling for control of the different routes to get in and the different entries, um, they were right. having people go right. around the end of the wall. I mean, the walls, the walls kind of a little bit irrelevant. I mean, it's a barrier and it forces people further out in the desert and it makes right. it more dangerous. But um, that's not ultimately going to stop people from coming. I mean, that, it can't. Um, well, what do you say to the people? You know, the, the rhetoric that's out there now is a lot of politicians are calling it an invasion that we're being invaded from our southern borders and that's the language that's being used you were there what describe i mean what do you what would you say to those to people who describe it in that way you know just look at these like children coming i'm like these are the invaders that we're discussing like it's just you know, it feels like just a tragedy of what people are having to leave. And, you know, you can look at the U.S. role in these countries over time and and look at, um, right. you know, that that's something that I think should be looked at. But um, like policies that kind of helped feed the crisis. In a way. Right. Right. Yeah, and put yeah. different people in power and take people out of power. And, and the North and, American Free Trade Agreement has its role in it. And now there's guns. I mean, we the, the, there's there's um, a million guns smuggled into Mexico from the U.S. every year, and eight hundred thousand of those are 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 weapons of war. They're like AR-15s, you know, and 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 they're, they're um, and so now these cartels are better armed than the police, and then now that now they're arming other organizations in other countries, which is making it more dangerous for people, and that's 
that's a, a little bit on us. I mean, like if we're if we're letting those guns, and then in addition, the U.S. you know is is also selling arms to 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 the vast majority of these countries as well, and not just to the governments, but to sort of private businesses. Almost all these weapons are ending up in the hands of, of cartel members, and and um, and then you know so we have we have guns going down, and and money and and money going down, and we have drugs and people coming up, right? And people are coming up not just because they can make a better living here. Um, they're coming up now largely like people would not make this journey with three year olds right. if they weren't afraid yeah. for their lives or their three-year-old's life. They just would, they, you would not do that. There's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's unconscionable. And these people, amazing for, for doing that for their kids. I mean, that's really like, I would hope I would have the courage to do that. Yeah. If, if, if my family was in danger. Yeah. And I think that's not to say that we don't have an immigration problem oh, um, sure. because, you know, we have people, We'll get to Border Patrol and they'll be given a, an appearance ticket, as it were, to come back to court and they may just disappear. I mean, but there's clearly what there was two and a half million people came over the border last year and the, the, the whole system is overwhelmed. And I don't know what we can do to make it more humane, but we have to do something. I mean, uh, that's my take anyway. Yeah, I mean, as long as the situation is devolving in um, those countries to the south, it's not going to get any better. You know, I don't know what kind of efforts have been put in to maybe improve life in some of those situations where or the countries that are controlled by gangs and um, and peoples are being threatened every day. But um, I don't know. That just seems like trying to stabilize some of those countries down there. I mean, even Ecuador, which used to be a fairly stable country, is having issues now, you know, um, and it's just. We were just there. For yeah, 10 days. yeah. I was, I was there back in the '80s, and it was so peaceful and lovely. And um, it's just really sad to read how, how it's not. Um, how was it for you down there? Um, yeah, we were there right when you know a lot of chaos was happening in the country. So we were in a not in one of the we were in uh, Cuenca, not in Quito or Guayaquil. But um, yeah, it was it was fascinating to just be there on, on the other end after just being on the border. As well, but I was I was going to say about the whole invasion concept. You know, I just feel like there's so much fear um, and of immigrants, and so that's that's the thing. Like when people say, and there's an invasion, and they're coming, and there's all this misinformation about these are the criminals and the, the you know all, all of that rhetoric and and demonizing of of the folks crossing. The border. I mean, to me, that just seems it makes me, you know, if you believe all of that, I can understand why you would um, go want to go down to the border and and scare people and tell them, you know, to go away or like that kind of things happening there. I just there's just yeah, I think just the fear that's instilled in, in people about it and, and or even fear of like they're coming, they'll take your jobs and and you know you just look at there's what was the thing we just six, there's six million vacant jobs when you were in arizona did you see any of that any of the people who were hostile towards the people coming across do you see do you see you know any evidence of that you want to uh, say? yeah i mean we definitely did um you know some from border patrol um and but but also just uh, from from individuals, and there was one particular individual who um, who confronted me, and um, he was part of a, a a group of older men who were doing a, like a dirt bike tour through the Sonoran Desert. Really nice group of guys. I met the leader a couple of days before that, but this guy um, approached me, and um, you know, there's probably 250 people that we were trying to care for, and we'd made food for, and given water, and and um, and the, we informed Border Patrol that you know, there's folks here waiting to be picked up and, and this group shows up and this guy approached me and was just, um, in my face about, um, asking me how many, or what's the number. He just kept looking at me and getting really close to me. What's the number. And I kept backing up being like, I don't know what you're talking about. Excuse me. Cause I'm having a conversation with the leader of this group. And, um, and he, um, and he was just convinced that this was an organ. This was all organized by the democratic party and Biden was behind it. 
And I mean, he just went off on this whole thing and it, and, and meanwhile, I mean, there's, there's literally like, you know, there's, there's people who were in really, really rough shape that day on the border wall. I mean, there was just some folks who, who were in, um, really, really needed care and medical care and families and babies. And, and I looked at him and I said, you, you really think that these babies are part of, you know, like, this is part of some plot. And he said, absolutely. And if you don't, you're blind. And, and it just, it was really important for me to encounter that because he, he was absolutely certain about it. And there was nothing. I mean, if you can, if you can be within 50 feet of people in that much need and not feel it, you, nothing's going to change that person's mind ever, right? Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. I think that's probably also what you've seen, the difference between being on the border 15 years ago and now is just the polarization of views. You know, it doesn't, I don't remember it being that, um, you know, that stark, this side versus that side, you know. But it was pretty bad then, too. There were bands of vigilantes who were going around and rounding people up. It was a little bit of the Wild West back then. But now they have more permission now to be vocal. You know, it's like different. Mm -hmm. That feeling is really different. And so folks are there now. In fact, after we left, vigilante groups have been going down and harassing um, both the people who are the, the seeking asylum and the people who are assisting them. Wow. So your role, when as soon as you would encounter a, or get a good a big group of people around you, you would contact Border Patrol to come um, get them and start processing them. Is that how the process worked when you were there? Um, yeah, and we could, and that was one thing with having the Wi-Fi connection, we could make that call. But basically, we would, you know, often there were other humanitarian groups present, which was great. A few times, no one, it was just us. Um, so we would just, you know, start giving out water, um, give everyone the Wi-Fi, have them start charging their phones. We had 40 um, uh, charging ports in our van. We kept getting more. <laughs> um, so, um, and yeah, called Border Patrol. You know, they Border Patrol knows, like, it's just a spot. They, they know that there's just going to always be people there, but they're overwhelmed. Um, and so it sometimes takes them a while to, to get there. But then also there's often 911 calls that need to be made um, for people yeah, really struggling. And yeah, and then everyone just kind of like settle, finds their spot along the along the wall for their family. And then um, we would just kind of go once they get the basic needs done, then it's just a waiting, a matter of waiting. So we would just kind of go and talk to people and hear their stories and um, if it start once it starts to get closer to nightfall, then people start getting nervous, like what it's getting cold or what's going to happen. So then it's figuring, you know, figure out what blankets there are available and what people can have and, um, help telling people they need to start, you know, getting wood to make fires. So how long would it take border patrol to come and pick up the people that you were helping? Was it within a day or so, would you say? Except for our first day, which people had been there for two or three days, um, then it was pretty much every day. Like we'd come back the next day and, you know, it would be different people there. So, yeah. Um, but but often that would happen like in the middle of the night. So people, you know, or maybe first thing in the morning. Um, but yeah. And, and then we've heard that now pickups have been more more frequent. So did you have any run ins with the cartels that are controlling that? um entry point no no they're not they don't come to the to the american side yeah i was gonna say you heard them though the cartels you heard the gunfire oh, yeah we could hear gunfire our last days there there was um a lot of i guess battling out of the two 
cartels for that. So we could you could hear the the gunfire was a little unnerving. What is their interest in in that crossover point? I mean, you, you said that the different cartels controlled di the di different points of entry. What are, are they trying to prevent that? Yeah, they're, well, they're just trying to secure smuggling routes. Oh, right? All right. And so it's, it's, all it's all competition for smuggling routes. And in this case, probably also, do they try to shake down the migrants for money to cross and stuff? Yeah, they try to shake down the opposing <laughs> cartels people particularly, right? Because they're providing a service and they, they want their people to come through and then right. and they'll get more people. And then they want the other right. cartels people to. So for instance, one day um, we were aware that there was a large group that was supposed to be coming and then um, they didn't come. And then uh, later we found out that it was because the group had been, there was 160 people and, and it was in several, several like large trucks and the last the 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 column of trucks had been attacked by another cartel and they kidnapped 30 people from the end of that and they they held them for ransom um and from for so families till families sent money to them um, before they released them back and and i just uh spoke with one of our colleagues who's working down there right now too and and um, he said um, in the last seven days, there's been so much cartel violence on the Mexican side that no one, um, I mean, I think he had 12 people the other day um, that crossed. I mean, it's been, it's tapered off significantly right in that area because um, no one feels safe to try and bring people through that, the war zone right now. The, the people that you were dealing with um, when you were there, I, I mean, did you have the feeling that there were smugglers in that group as well? That, that, <laughs> I mean, I, I, how does, I'm, I'm trying to understand what it looks like on the ground there, that, that these are obviously places where people are flowing across. And I'm guessing the vast majority of those people are just escaping and, and looking for, for something better. But are there, are there those elements mixed in? Is that the danger here? Uh, well, there. I mean, we did encounter one guy who um, was working for someone um, smuggling, who um, asked us to call Border Patrol to be picked up, and then disappeared. And then later, when Border Patrol did show up, um, he was the only one there, and he he ran back across the to the the U.S. side to Mexico. So it was clear that he was, but he wasn't a threat. He you know he was just he just was going to continue working, whatever. I guess I don't know, but um. Most, you know, anybody who's going to do something nefarious is not going to be in this group waiting for Border Patrol to show up at any moment. They're, they're not they're not hanging around. Yeah, they're they're going to slip through at night. They're going to start walking through the desert. They're going to have arranged transportation somewhere and they're going to, you know, they're going to go that way. And 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 that that's how it used to be. You know, that's kind of that's the old way. And there's still enough people that are doing that. Again, the vast majority are just looking for work. Um but um, I know that uh, two days after we left, there were two of these bands from from different cartels were fighting each other, and one chased the other uh, across the the border to or to the border, and um, and they threw down their weapons and stepped across and and, and turned themselves into border patrol, because either that or they're going to be killed by by the other mm -hmm. members of the cartel, and and you know the other thing to remember about this is like. The vast majority of these people probably do not want to be part of a cartel. Sure, sure. Right? But I, it's like when someone puts a gun to your child's head and says, you know, come work for us or or we're going to kill your family, they go work for them. And it's like, so there's this whole other thing of like, like, it's, it's, that's the complicated, awful part of the situation is that, 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 that there's, there's really terrible things being done but it's not always terrible people doing them. Sure. And, and it's, it, there aren't clear lines drawn. I'm sure that there, there are, you know, there's people mixed up in things that through no choice of their own. I, you know, the anguishing thing to me is the number of people that are coming across the border who are innocent and, and, and not doing anything nefarious gets forgotten because there's this concern about the other people who are crossing that might be dangerous. But, you know, that I think 
that's the frustrating part. Did, in talking with folks, when you've been there at different times in Arizona to the different people with different perspectives, does anyone have any ideas for how to fix it? I mean, it doesn't seem like there has been a real concerted effort to come up with a system that truly works for all sides. Does anybody have any ideas on how to address it? How to fix what? The whole immigration issue oh. and the, the <laughs> way the way immigration is handled by this country that 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 I think I think everyone from all sides agrees that they're that what we've got just isn't working for anybody and nobody should have to cross you know deserts and and risk their lives to 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 turn themselves over to border, border patrol it doesn't seem like a real workable system in the long term but does anybody have a better idea down there about how it should be done one thing i think you know is that in this country uh there used to be that attempt to to find some kind of a compromise you know the united states was the great compromise but today it's how do i keep a wedge issue a wedge issue and um yeah. and and that's you can't solve a problem if, if you don't want to solve it mm. and i think that's clearly what's happening now yeah i mean i think it's a it's a, a lot of money it's going to take a lot of money and it's going to i mean not every person who crosses the border deserves to stay here i think and i think everyone agrees that you know with that but there has to be some there has to be some attention, you know, more attention paid to the humanitarian crisis. I think, you know, I mean, I just, you, how can you? I mean, I, I saw your pictures. How can you look at these little kids in, and not feel your heartstrings being tugged? I mean, you know. Well, I, I think the bottom line, though, too, is is that you know we're we're still when we say immigration, we're still stuck in the the you know the 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 people that 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 they saw 15 years ago who were coming over looking for work or 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 whatever what what you're dealing with now is is people who are um you know seeking asylum because because their lives are 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 at risk and i think it, it gets it gets convoluted in, in, into one group of of immigration and and it's just not the same thing i mean these are these are people who are are being you know threatened and their families are being threatened and and it, you have to look at that different than immigration. Yeah, for sure. And I think there are some things that are that are really good that's being done. Like right now, for the first time in my life, the vast majority of the people that are crossing over into this country, we know who they are now, right? I mean, this system allowed, they're turning themselves into Border Patrol with right. their documents. And they're saying, this is who I am. This is my family. These are our contacts in the U.S., if they're given permission to to stay and get a hearing for you know for seeking asylum, they they there's a place where the, where the government knows that they're at least going to initially, and they know who they are. I mean, that was one of the chief complaints in the past was we don't know who these people are. They're being vetted, you know, like if there's a record, if there's any indication that they're legal, they don't they don't get the chance to actually even seek asylum. They're they're just deported immediately. And even of the people that do seek asylum, I think it's a really small percent, like 17% or something, actually receive asylum. So of all these people that are crossing over, the vast majority are are deported again. So what happens after the Border Patrol picked up the folks that you were helping? What's the process for them? Do you know? Um, my understanding is that they then get taken to Tucson. Um and there's a center called Casa Alitas that's run by the Catholic charities. And um, I mean, it's amazing. They they started because Border Patrol was just dropping people off at the bus stop um, and like with no <laughs> where to go, like no, not, you know, or just like on the streets of Tucson. So this is, it's amazing that now that people can go to Casa Alitas, they um, give them an orientation. And like a lot of people don't even know what state, where they are, what state, you know, they let them know. They give them um, a meal, a shower, um, place to stay and, and contact help contacting their family and arranging for their travel um, to wherever they they're going with their family. They don't pay for their travel, but they help them arrange transportation and their family or their connection in the States pay for the travel, whether it's Greyhound bus or air, 
fair or whatever. But prior to even getting to Casalitas, as once they're picked up, they go to a detention center near the border and they're interviewed by uh, by border patrol agents and to determine whether or not there's sufficient evidence or or um, for them to even qualify to apply for asylum. And that's during that stop when they're there. That's also when um, they review their documents and try and find out if there's any um, warrants out for their arrest or anything else going on with these folks before they're in way if they pass that first stage, then they go to Tucson, at least from this area, they go to Tucson In other places, you know, um, in Texas, sometimes they're, they're, there's a place in El Paso very similar to what's in Tucson, and, and uh, the mayor is really happy to have folks there, and it's working out. But a lot of the folks are, you know, being rounded up and put on buses and shipped to Chicago because that happens to be where the weather is the worst that week. Um, you know, I mean, it's really a much more punitive kind of feeling versus like, how do you, how do you help these people who are uh, fleeing for their lives? So the people who are at Border Patrol who are not granted asylum status, do they immediately send them back across the border or do they hold them in detention centers until they can send them back or just wondering? How yeah, it depends on what the, their situation is. Often they're held in detention centers until more is known. And then if there's warrants in the States, then they'll, they'll deal with them in the States. If there's warrants in other countries, sometimes they pass them back or, you know, I'm not sure exactly how that process works, but I know that um, a good number of people are deported. Um, you know, initially without without making it through that first phase. So did you connect with anybody that you were helping that you might stay in touch with and follow their journey at all? I'm curious if you exchanged any information to keep in touch. I am um, a few people. I gave them my contact info and I haven't I haven't heard back. I've been hoping to hear there's one woman who was headed to East Hampton Um and from Ecuador, and she was, you know, I was like, what, East Hampton? <laughs> so, here, call me when you get there. <laughs> but I haven't heard. So, and then um, I was actually thinking someone's phone wasn't working. So, she, I just, she used my phone to call her brother. And so, now I have her brother's number in my phone. I was thinking maybe I, I could call him and just find out what happened to his sister and her and his niece. Um, but, yeah, because I would love to. Love to know. I'm, I'm curious about the other side too. Do you are you hearing from local people who want to help, um, who want to contribute to what you're doing to either by doing it too or by helping you supporting you? Yeah, I sent out. So I run a language school um, called Express Fluency, and I, I sent out to all my mailing lists when we got back. Like, um, you know, we we just got back from this amazing experience. Let me know if you're interested, and I can organize some trip service trips in the spring and instantly like 40 people <laughs> responded like, yes, I want to come, I want to come help. So, um, then, or how, and uh, uh, lots of other people saying like, how can we contribute or how, what can we do? So, um, you know, we've just shared the, the information, like the Samaritans and the no more deaths and Salva Vision, like some of the local organizations that we think are amazing and that the money goes directly into, and, in, you know, working with people. So, so yeah, so I'm right now I'm working on planning some trips for the spring so that we can bring other people down and, and, and help people understand the issues and have different experiences working with people. That's awesome. Do you guys have a website that you refer people to? Have you started your own website yet? I'm not about border stuff, actually. No. We haven't. And once we go, when we go back, we're, we're figuring out when we're going back. Andy would leave tomorrow if he, <laughs> if he could, I'm, I'm feeling happy to be home for a little bit before we go back. But once we do go back, we'll start a, a fundraising um, campaign to try to, you know, because a lot of when we were there before, we just had to out of our own pocket, like buy supplies and blankets and, blankets food and, and water. And So were you running back to like civilization every day to, stock up on what you would need to help the people coming over the border? Is that how you did that? Not every day, but we did a few, like after our first day when we were just like, <laughs> what, what we had no idea what we, you know, and that's when people had been there for a few days. And we, so we, we just went straight to, um, to Tucson and stocked up on, on lots of stuff. 
that lasted us for a while. And then um, eventually the other groups um, invited us in. They have a shed of supplies. And so they we could go in and, and grab food and water from there, which was great. Otherwise, saves the two-hour trip, yeah. too. Wow. That's crazy. Um, can I go back to, there was a question earlier about folks coming over in those groups that aren't that aren't um, just looking for asylum. And um, I wanted to say, I was just recalling that there were a couple of occasions when I had concerns about people that came over in a group. Um, and, and, and one of them, because um, there was a group that was clearly afraid of someone and they told me that and they laughed. They just, they just started walking to try and leave this person behind. And we met them down the road later when we were leaving for the night to go camp in the desert and they were they were waiting for border patrol, but in a different spot and just on their own. And they felt totally safe now that they weren't around this other person. And and so I don't know if it was issues with the women and it was a man. I don't know what it was, but you know, so there was that. And then I would, you know, once people settled in and I saw how the groups were forming and all that, I would look around because I hated leaving people at night. I mean, that was the worst thing was going mm -hmm. off to sleep in the desert somewhere and leaving all these people on the wall and not knowing if vigilantes are going to come or if there are bad people in the group. And so I would, as we're walking around and talking to people, we're finding out like who needs medical, you know, has whatever help or anything. I used to be in the EMT and, and, and also just kind of getting a, a feel for folks. And I remember one time there were these two, there's an, a guy in his, maybe his, like he was around 50, I would guess. And then, and, and or, or in his forties and then um, a younger man. And they were, they were kind of looking brooding and they were always off to the side and, and they worried me, you know? So I just walked over and just started talking to them to see if there's any reason I should be worried. And, um and, 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 and this was the only reason I'm trying this is because this is kind of, this is, this is just an example of what you face. And so I, I just asked this guy point blank, you know, like, what well, you know, how, how are you guys doing? And, and he's and he's told me that his son, who was 16, um, didn't want to be there, but he dragged them there because the cartels came after him. And but his son didn't want to leave. He didn't want to be part of the cartels, but he didn't want to leave his home and family. And so his dad literally like had to force him the whole way across the border. And he said, um, and his, his dad got really choked up and he said, um, he said, I had to do things I never thought I would have to do to get here. And he said, you know, and and I, I didn't ask any questions about it. He said we got attacked, um, and he said I, I, um, it was either them or us, and I, I, you know, and we're here now. And, and this was like I forget. I think he he had a, he had a, he was like a street vendor or something. You know, he had like a cart or something in wherever. I don't even remember where it was from, um, and and um, he he wasn't signing on to it. You know, like he. Anyway, so they were, he was, they were aside because one, the son was just really still pissed and, and the dad was still coming to grips with the, with the reality of the situation that they've just gone through. And, you know, I thought they were dangerous, but like, I was worried, you know what I mean? Like sure. traumatized. Yeah. They were just traumatized. Right. Exactly. And so over and over, that's kind of what you'd find is that people who were, Set, setting off to the side more it was usually fear just mm. they'd gone through stuff that you know just awful awful thing you know it, it it's why i feel like these stories are so important to tell and for steve to tell it in the paper but for you guys to be here telling it now in your own words too because this issue you know when it's being discussed as a political issue the humanity gets squeezed out of it that that the conversation is always at a 50,000 foot view and you know it the the human element is completely drained from it so that people can take extreme views and it's just i think we've got to be reminded over and over and over and over again that these are human beings and these are children and men and women with very complicated lives that we're talking about here. These are not invaders. These are not, you know, immigrants as a group. There's just no, you cannot think of people as a group. These are individual people. And I, and I, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, I think there's lots of room for conversation about the politics of this, but we cannot ignore the humanity of this. And, and I think what you're doing is amazing. I think what you've done is amazing. I think what's even more important in a lot of ways is that you're talking about it because 
I don't think most of us will will have that experience that you had, but it but it's so crucial to remind people of the of the faces and the personalities and and the stories um, that that are behind all this. It, it just gets lost, and and I think that's one of the real tragedies. Well, thank you for saying that. I agree completely. I mean, it was. I was so inspired by the people there. I mean, I was really like, no matter how much we gave and food and water and, you know, kindness or whatever we were trying, you know, Wi-Fi, all that stuff. Like, I feel like I got so much more personally from them, you know, just, um, it was really, it was really extraordinary. And, and, um, and so many of them, so many folks too asked us how they, you know, if, if, you know, how they could come back and help other people that are in this situation. They just thought it was amazing that we don't work for anybody. We just, that we, that we and other people just showed up to help when no one else did. And they were like that, you know, I want to do this. Like, how can, how can we help other people? And, um, and then they, people would jump in and they're cleaning up trash and, you know, like, like it was, it was really, really inspiring and touching and, and horrible and, beautiful and you know it's like it's like the entire human experience just compressed into this in, into these short days um and and you'd see people and be around them for 12 hours and then the next day they'd be gone and then there'd be 200 more people and you'd have the same experience and with different people from different places with different stories but all of it kind of the, with the same the same feeling behind it you know so i know i appreciate what you said and I feel like we can do so much better. I don't, you know, politics, whatever, like we can just, we can do so much better. And, and I, and I really believe we will. Um, I just don't know how, how we're going to get there. You just think about all of the money that's gone into building this wall and militarizing the border and all, you know, it's just, there's gotta be some other solution than, than what we're doing. So Somehow I feel like you guys will be the ones to figure it out, though. So that's just <laughs> yeah. your marketing no. orders. But we'll give people one. We're counting yeah. on you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the other really inspiring thing is just working with all the incredible people, local, you know, the people out there who are just there, every, you know, every week, every who've been doing this work for 20, 30 years. Um, just incredible, dedicated people to, yeah, I, I just... I felt really lucky to get to know and work with people. And um, there is a lot, a lot of good work happening there. Yeah. Well, I just thank you guys for sharing your story. Cause I, cause I think it's, I, I just think that's, as I said, part of the battle, I think is just to remind people over and over again about the humanity. And, and I think there's a real humanity that, that comes from what you're doing as well. So kudos. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for helping us um, share our experiences <laughs> with the wider audience. We really we appreciate that. And keep us posted about what's next, too, so we can follow the journey. Oh, yeah, we will. For sure. <laughs> keep up the good work. <laughs> I'm hearing our puppy barking. I just realized we didn't we didn't mention him, how he was like our little therapy dog. when uh, <laughs> After everyone got settled in, Andy would bring the Pup around and what's um, his name? Rafa. Yeah, Rafa, Rafa. got shortchanged in the article Rafa. too. Sorry. Shout out to Rafa, the therapy dog. Yeah, so the kids would just the kids just loved him. <laughs> They'd be like, he doesn't have ears. <laughs> Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over fifty years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. 
Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27east.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.